So I have my signed copy of Reinventing Comics. And I was thinking that I know I met you in line to get an autograph from Scott McCloud, but I feel like it was the Making Comics. It was, yeah, because okay. I was thinking about that too. Like we met at the signing for Making Comics. Right. I already had Reinventing Comics at that okay. point. So okay. Making Comics was released after Reinventing Comics? Yes. Okay, I didn't hallucinate that book. That's good. So like, <laughs> Reinventing okay, Comics like, was the, um, uh, oh, let me get my Star Trek references right here. Uh, it was the... The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's I'm a good piss one. off every nerd ever. <laughs> Re Re Reinventing Comics was the Star Trek V, uh, the undiscovered country of Scott McCloud's Uva. No, you're all wrong. <laughs> I like the one with the whales. I'm abandoning my metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... When I will say when I was reading this, I kept waiting for him to get into categorizing cartoonists as animists and formalists and iconoclasts, and he never did. And I was like, oh, right, that's making comics. Okay, like, that's that, okay. so I have that my brain. I do have like, <laughs> okay. Okay, so welcome to the Trade Waiters. Uh, today's episode, we are reading Reinventing Comics by Scott McCloud. Uh, and we have, a, this is our 100th episode. And to help us celebrate, Ooh. we have a, a guest. Yeah. Former Trade Waiter. Cut all ties. Welcome Somehow back. Somehow returned. Hey, one of us. One of us. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, what, what happened was Kathleen was going to the comic shop every Wednesday to pick up like uh, Superman and Batman. Yeah. And so you weren't a trade waiter during that time. We could not uh, allow someone who goes to a comic shop every Wednesday to be part of our panel. Yeah, it's true. That's exactly how it happened. Um, no, I'm glad to be back. Yeah, ready to talk about some comics. Uh, it's funny I was thinking about like when was the last time I was on this show and like I think it was truly a lifetime ago because I think it was before I'd published any books and now I have books out uh, <laughs> so like, what books do you have out uh I have several middle grade graphic novels out uh they're both modern day adaptations of classic American and Canadian novels uh one is called joe an adaptation of little women sort of and anne an adaptation of anna Green gables sort of is the other one and yeah they both sort of reinterpret classic novels through a modern queer lens for a middle grade audience and they're great people we're super proud of you <laughs> awesome books i'm excited for the next one yeah i'm working on on the next book right now so <laughs> Right on. Okay, so um, I guess I, mean, I sort of picked this book. I don't know if this counts for our usual method of picking books, but I can tell you a little bit about Scott McCloud. Uh, oh, I guess we have to do a character building question first, don't we? Yes. Um, all right, so my character building question is going to be, I hope I haven't asked this one before. Uh, what was your first webcomic? 
not necessarily the first com web comic that you were a big fan of, but the first web comic you can remember actually sitting down and reading. Oh, that's a really I, hard one. I'm gonna have to think about it. Oh, I can. I got a. I got an instant answer. Mm -hmm. uh, so hi, I'm Jeff Ellis, and I have very fond memories of reading Sluggy Freelance. And I discovered Sluggy Freelance after it had already put out, I don't know, years of content. So I sort of went through the back catalog of Sluggy Freelance and like read it all the way until I caught up with it. And then I had to wait for updates. And sadly, I'd say that's about when they lost me, though, because I just then I kind of lost track of it. But like I used to just sit and like read page after page after page of Sluggy Freelance until until my eyes were tired. And uh, that was a wild ride because uh, that guy had no plan other than just to take his like three characters and then find a way to wedge them into yet another parody of some other thing and just keep the story moving forward. Uh, but yeah, it, it got better with draw. It got better at drawing as it progressed. Um, I have, I've, yeah, fond memories of Sluggy Freelance. I'm not even sure if it's still running today, but yeah, that was my first webcomic. All right. I think I've sorted out my memory. Uh, I'm Jam, and I went to a very uncool high school. And when I went to university, and this was in 2002, I was able to reconnect from some with some friends with some from from a former high school. So I moved a lot when I was a kid and I used to go to high school with some people who lived in BC. And then I moved away to Pennsylvania, which I did not enjoy. And then I went to UBC and I got back together with my friends and my friends were like, oh, it's so good to see you again. Uh, have you read like comics on the Internet? And I was like, there's comics on the Internet. And uh, this is a little embarrassing, but stick with me. Uh, the one that I was connected with first was Penny Arcade. And, uh, but it was like my first introduction of like reading through it. And I'm like, holy crap, comics on the internet and they're free. And this is awesome. But I very quickly went from Penny Arcade to like the whole blossoming world of web comics. So like very quickly, I, I landed on questionable content. I think that's one that really stuck out is like, oh, this one grips me very, very quickly and getting into that and uh, Saturday morning breakfast cereal and dinosaur comics are the other ones that I remember like reading and also just like sharing around with my friends like in engineering school, like that was uh, a very important part uh, of going through it. And it is what inspired me to start drawing my own comics. Um, I had been drawing very different kinds of comics before, but kind of more Self-contained gag comics came from that exposure to, to web comics. Uh, I'm JD, and uh, I was trying to remember the exact timeline of this because uh, I know that reading reinventing comics and then straight away going to Scott McCloud's website because he tells you several times in the books, go to my website, I've got more stuff there, was pivotal in my discovery of web comics because he had links to a, like a bunch of comics uh, on the internet. But I think I may have discovered web comics before that just by using Google. And the only one that I think I found through that method was uh, Mega Tokyo, hmm. <laughs> which uh, I can't necessarily recommend. I think it might still be on the internet. It was basically started by two, I think it's fair to say, self professed uh, otaku. 
who were basically like, what if we went to Japan and everything was like a like an anime? Uh, and <laughs> one of the two creators dropped out pretty early. Uh, and then it was just like that forever. Uh, like two nerds in Japan being anime. But at least you know, it was it was a long form comic. It wasn't like a gag comic, which I wasn't as excited about that. I, I wanted a story, like a longer story. Uh, and it was on the internet and it was comics and it was free. And so that was um, either right before I read Reinvented Comics or soon after and was the first one that sort of stood out in my mind as like, hey, there's comics. Uh, my name is Kathleen and I was trying to think about like what maybe the first webcomic I read because I was heavily into reading webcomics in sort of the mid 2000s because I was a kid and I had nothing else to do. So all of my time on the computer after school was just spent reading as many webcomics as possible. Uh, but I think the first one was uh, Scary Go Round oh, uh, nice. by John Allison. I think somebody just like, I, I either discovered it one of two ways. Either somebody recommended it on a forum I was on, or I came across it in a book I was gifted that was kind of like must have come out in the like early mid 2000s that was about like wow people are making comics online and it was just sort of like a cataloging of a bunch of different people who are like making comics either with digital tools or like online and maybe that was how I found it but I was a really really big fan of Scary Ground for a really long time um I just love any sort of comic that has a or like any I guess not even just comic I like this with tv shows as well but like anything that feels like it has a really complete world and you sort of stick with one character for a while and then may you maybe go off to another character for a while. Um, it's sort of like the Degrassi sort of like concept of storytelling that Scary Ground is also doing. Um, and then I discovered so many more webcomics via, because back in the day, people would have like a list of like either friends or like webcomics they liked linked on the side of their website uh, for their web comics. And I found so many comics that way. I think I like found wasted talent that way as well. It's just like clicking through someone's like, these are comics I like <laughs> list on their web, web comic website. Oh, so important link trees. We can get into that, man. Yeah. Yeah. We need to bring those back. All right. So before we do any more early 2000s nostalgia, uh, let me tell you very briefly about Scott McCloud. So Scott McCloud has been, I mean, he talks about himself in his book. So that's my main source of information here. His three, his, I guess, trilogy of nonfiction books is what he's most known for. Uh, those being Understanding Comics, which came out in the mid nineties. Uh, Reinventing Comics was the, the second one, which came out in the year 2000. And then Making Comics came out a few years later. Uh, and they're all very different from each other. Uh, understanding comics is more sort of um, explaining what comics are uh, and talking about the sort of the building blocks that they're made out of, the sort of the, the tools in comics toolbox, and was one of the first like serious works on that subject. Not the first, but one of the first, and certainly the most widely read in that small field, I think. And then making comics was more about the process of actually like, how do you make a comic? Uh, he also did uh, the comic Zot, which is a uh, superhero comic. It's 
been collected as a giant graphic novel, but it's like an independent superhero. It's not a Marvel or DC thing. It's his own creation. Uh, and it was very experimental. And then he also did The Sculptor, which that came out after making comics, I think, and is also a giant graphic novel that is very exper- experimental. I want to read that. Oh, I've read it. Yeah, I have also read it. It's all right. Okay. Yeah, interesting. It's very <laughs> big. Right. I mean, that's <laughs> part of what maybe has stopped me in the past. I think after reading all of his uh, nonfiction stuff, I've been like thinking, oh, I haven't read any Scott McCloud fiction. I should give it a whirl. But... I enjoyed Zot. Zot was yeah, fun. Yeah, I, I remember enjoying Zot as well, but I, I did read it quite a long time ago. My uh, attachment to this book, the reason I recommended this book for the group is that, like I said, it's sort of, it was right at the point where I was discovering that web comics were a thing. So like rereading it, I felt like this is, it was interesting because it was very, like I'm reading this book and I'm, Scott McCout is making the time to like carefully lay out his arguments for the, the things he wants to say. And as I'm reading them, I'm just nodding along like, yep, yep, I already believe that. And then realizing, oh, I, these are all the things I think because I read this book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think he really provided a lot of context that all of us did end up coming back to as things unfolded. So it's it's quite difficult to kind of divorce yourself from the impact that reinventing comics had on our history as as an industry. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting because yeah, my memory is I remember being really into comics and starting to discover independent comics, and somebody said you've got to read understanding comics by scott mcleod i read that and i loved it and then they said hey good news he's coming out with this new book and i think i might have even picked it up at the alternative press expo like in the year 2000 like and got it directly from him i can't remember but i just remember reading reinventing comics and yeah just getting so fired up about comics and the future of comics but then i also remember not long afterwards, there seemed to be this backlash. And I did some research. Like I went back to Scott McLeod's website and he has a whole page devoted to backlash. And it was sort of my memory was that this had become this really reviled work that people were like, well, Scott, like you're really on top of it with understanding comics. You sure do understand them, but you have no idea how to reinvent them. Um, And then like making comics was like his his like redemption book where people were like, Oh, well that was, a, that was pretty good. That was like a, that was a good third, third act, you know? Uh, but then rereading this, I'm like, Scott knew he knew everything. We should have listened to Scott. <laughs> yeah. I found it really, really interesting in that context. So we're 20 years out now from when this book was originally published and it's really fascinating. I'm really, really grateful for it being kind of a time capsule of what the industry felt about itself at around the the late 90s, because they would just come off this huge speculator bubble wave, which was a very weird thing. So like, I kind of missed that wave. And I came into comics right at the beginning of what he's hopefully describing. But what's funny is I feel like the wave that I rode came and went. 
And now we're standing at like the back of a, a different wave, which is kind of like uh, the rise and let's say transformation of the web era. And so, yeah, I felt that there was uh, a lot to reflect on in this work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was really excited when you folks wanted to bring me in to read this book, because I think my impression of this book, which was totally uneducated, was just like, understanding comics is a great work and making comics has been so incredibly valuable to me and then reinventing comics was like eh why would I need to read that um and I think maybe some folks in my sphere had been like I don't know it has some weird ideas in it it's not worth reading but you know by youth sort of the youthful ignorance of being like ah yeah well then I'm not gonna read it but as an adult it's very like interesting to read and because I'm a little bit younger than all of you it is also like interesting to contrast sort of like my experience coming up through reading comics like in the sort of decade after this book is published and sort of reflecting back on sort of the beginning of that a little bit and like what was my perception as like a child reader at that time because this book came out when I was like seven and then like as an adult in the industry now like sort of thinking back on where things were and where things are now and the ways in which they're very similar in many ways in many frustrating ways yeah like I, I feel like the peril inherent in writing a book like reinventing comics is if you, as soon as you're trying to predict the future the the danger isn't necessarily getting everything wrong like it's much more likely that you will get things in the wrong order so like 20 years on like a lot of the stuff that the scott predicted has come to true come true in one form or another not necessarily yeah. exactly how he drew it on the page mm -hmm. but like five years after it came after the book came out i feel like that's around the time period where there was all this criticism like oh uh micro payments we don't have that haha ha, that never happened or like infinite canvas what a ridiculous idea and like here we are 20 years after the book came out and like yeah no that all is true now so <laughs> in certain ways in yeah. certain ways so i think it's like yeah when you look back on it in hindsight it's like oh this is what he's describing but like when you're coming at it from the before side, you have all these ideas about what that could possibly end up being. And then it doesn't quite end up kind of like you were saying, like it doesn't quite end up like the, it was imagined at that point, but in hindsight, it definitely does fit what he's describing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that maybe re like rereading this, I mean, it really stood out the number of things that he got right. But I think if I can... I'll, I'll be a little critical of uh, of this, which is like, I do think that maybe part of why he had this backlash was that he just sort of was throwing everything in the kitchen sink at us where he's just like, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's this, like infinite canvas, we could have like a ribbon or it could be a sphere or it could be a cone or it could be a, like, think of all the possibilities. And like, I I do think that maybe, like I admire his enthusiasm for the future. Like he's, He's running forward with stars in his eyes, wanting to sort of take on these new challenges. But like, I sometimes think he's not thinking it through deeply, like, like the infinite canvas thing where like his first thing was like, well, what if it was a big ribbon? And I'm like, you just predicted webtoons. You're a genius. And then he's like, or it could be like a, an interactive sphere that you watch through a VR helmet. I'm like, no, Scott, nobody wants that. <laughs> like, that's too complicated. Like, it's like, I think that he, 
gets too in love with the possibilities and like loses sight of the forest for the trees in some instances. Uh, I know you guys can tell me what you think of that, but like, I just found like, especially when he's talking about digital tools, like he was just kind of like with digital tools, like you could have a comic that's all foil emboss. You could have a comic that has sewer pipes instead of panel borders. You could have a comic that, and it's just like, yeah, Scott, those are all things I could do with Photoshop, but should I do those things in Photoshop? Like, does that I make think, good yeah, comment? I think it's <laughs> important to have someone who's in the role of saying, these are things you can do. When you're especially coming in through a transformation where you've only had one way of doing things, it's important to have someone who says, hey, there's a forest over there. Even if at the end of the day, we look at that forest and we say, oh, actually the only tree that is gonna be really revolutionary for us is the pine. And there's all these other things growing that are interesting, but at this time, the pine is what's important. Right. But if someone didn't say, hey, there's a forest over there, we wouldn't have never discovered it. No, yeah, and I think in terms of like definitions of words, like I don't think he even uses the word webcomic until like more than 100 pages in, uh, like 200 pages in or something like that. And, and he doesn't have it as one word. It's like web space comic because it wasn't a word yet. Maybe if you go back, you can like find people who were using web comic full word before 2000, but I'm pretty sure that's Scott inventing a word, even if he's not the first person to have invented it. Yeah. Uh, and like, yeah, I mean, this, the, there really was this perception of comics have to be a 24 page mass produced magazine with panels in it. Or and, a newspaper strip. Yeah, yeah. And understanding the comics did a little bit of work to say, that's not what a comic is, but it was written in a world where there weren't a lot of other examples. You have to go back to like Mish tech history to find a comic that's a different shape or like Trajan's column. And, and this comic I thought, or, or this book, I, I feel like it was really important to say, here are things that comics can be now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of the things like you're saying, like the, like what if you put pipes around a panel and like, or whatever, um like though maybe no one wants to do that for a whole book but i bet you could find one example somewhere if you looked hard enough of all of these tools being used by someone at some point like the thing he does where he's like and he does this in his uh infinite canvas panels where he has like a, a panel and then a line connecting to the next panel like that's something jason shiga did in in his book meanwhile uh rebecca Dart also did it in Rabbit Head. Oh yeah, that's is right. like an older work of hers um, that has sort of like different timelines or different events splitting off from one event, included in one of the best American comics, uh, I believe. Yeah, yeah, good. I, re I remember that comic, but yeah. So I, I feel like here he's sort of pitching it as like, here's a thing you can do with comics, and like maybe ninety nine percent of us don't need that tool. But the 1% of cartoonists who have used it have used it really well. Or even, you know, if you're thinking about sort of like the idea of VR comics, like I do think about like Sean Caremaker, a local Vancouver creator, and how he is one of the few people I know who like I think has very successfully experimented with VR. This is 
years ago now um, because the pandemic just sucked so much of my life away. But pre-pandemic, like, you know, if you ran into him, he'd have like a little VR thing you could put on and like experience sort of like storytelling around you as you sort of stood in one spot and turned in a room and looked around and you could like look up and stuff. I think because of his um, background as well, like working in video games. So there are ways that people have been using those things, which I think are very interesting. For my, one of the things that I really enjoyed in this book, and I will say like, this book was like a little bit of a slog for me to get through. I keep sort of, I don't know, it, parts of it, I just maybe didn't find as interesting as I wanted them to be. Um, But the parts that I did find really interesting were like things like where they were talking, he was talking about like, I'm just going to quote a little bit, in an attempt to clarify creator's concern, I off- concerns, I offered a rough draft of the creator's bill of rights. And sort of like these ideas of actually like coming together as artists to talk about like, what are our collective goals? Um, and this idea of the creator bill of rights, that was like the right to full ownership of that which we fully create, the right to control over the creative execution of that which we fully own, the right to employ legal counsel in any and all transactions. Um, the right to prompt payments and fair and uh, equitable share of profits, etc. But that was just like very interesting to me to be like, how are people thinking about creators' rights then? Mm. Um, or how was Scott McCloud specifically thinking about creators' rights then? Uh, and I was glad to see that like creators' rights were a pretty significant part of I think of how everything was framed within this book because comics is an industry that will eat you alive. Uh, and I think eats us all alive in its own ways as much as I love it so Mm. it is both heartening and depressing to be like god we've been having the same conversations for decades and like are we making any progress right Um, yeah yeah no that's that's one thing that I do uh I don't know it's not a criticism of the book necessarily but it's definitely makes me sad when I read how excited Scott is about the promise of the internet how it's going to open everything up. Well, the the big corporations will never be able to trap us again. And like, oh, oh God, just so optimistic in the year 2000. Yeah, yeah here we it's are. A criticism of the system that we're in. You know, I feel like there was reason to be optimistic. Sure. The mm-hmm. way that Scott was. And unfortunately, we were not able to fully um, sidestep the inertia of the capitalist machine to consume all and maybe yeah. that also was an inevitable feature of the way that capitalism is yeah <laughs> i mean i made a note in here somewhere where i was just like capitalism is a prison because like you know he's describing print comics and the limitations of like well, if you want to make a comic, you got to publish it. Publishing it costs money. But then how do you get your comic to a store? Well, that means you need a distributor. That costs money. And like the store's got to make money. So they're going to take a cut. And like by the time the money gets back to the artist, they hardly have anything. But imagine if an artist had a website, they'd get all the pie, you know? And like, I love the optimism of that proposal. And it reminded mm-hmm. me of the year 2000 when... Yeah, it really felt like you could just hang your shingle on your personal website and bring people to you. And yeah, like it was, yeah, it was like bittersweet to like see him so passionate about every artist being able to have a fair shot on the internet with their own personal website and to be like, yeah, but Scott is all going to get consolidated. It's all going to get consolidated under Facebook and 
Amazon and Google and like, no one's going to see your webcomic when you put it on your personal website, you know, like, I mean, he was but also, we don't know that this is the end state. Yeah. Yeah. We are right. still all free agents. We yeah. And we have a lot more payment. options than, than we used to. Like you can have a solo website that's not part of Webtoon or Tapas and you don't have to promote it on Facebook mm -hmm. uh, and you can be successful at that. It's just really, really difficult. Yeah. I think in some ways we do have like one of the nice benefits of the internet, even as it exists now is that like the network of word of mouth is so much broader than it could be in the past. And that can be a real advantage when, you know, the lightning strikes and it does work out. Another thing that sort of like struck me as I was reading this or that I, because I took a whole bunch of pictures while I was reading to be like, what do I, what do I want to bring up while I'm on the podcast? Because I know immediately I'm going to forget everything I ever read, but I have one like aside that I just think is funny. And then one thing that is like more serious, but there's one panel on page 80 where he sort of like mentions that in May 1995 he was taking a reference taking trip to Washington DC because he was working on a graphic novel that partially took place in DC and I was like god what a world I wish that was the world I was living in I wish I was going on trips to be able to take reference photos instead of sort of like clicking around google maps and <laughs> like you know i mean true doing the best i can on the other hand that we have google maps now yeah but it's not the same as taking your own reference no, of course photos. Not. <laughs> um and then so that was like the, the funny thing where i was like oh man uh made me think of sort of like you know like uh old school illustration as well where you'd sort of like you know actually be able to go on trips and make the kind of money where you could pay models but then the sort of like more serious thing that I wanted to talk about was on page 89, he starts talking about obscenity charges. And he says, public perception matters. As long as the broader community assumes that comics by their nature are without social value and by their nature are suitable only for kids, then charges of obscenity will always hit their mark. And for all our progress, those assumptions are still in force in many regions in the United States. And I thought this was a really interesting section because, of course, like I was very young when this book came out. So my perception of the time is very, very narrow because it was basically just like, you know, the very small bubble that I was in. But the sort of anecdote about the one artist, Mike Diana, who was told under penalty of law exactly what he could and couldn't draw. I don't know. That was just very like, of course that happened and kind of chilling and then also like oh god we can't escape this we're still here and we're it's like i don't know if it's gotten bad enough that anyone's been told what they can and can't draw under law but we're like we're getting there <laughs> like books yeah. are being banned right and left and like in more and more ways that seem like we're going down a path towards violence like, it feels like the danger is just, like, ever-present, especially for creators in the United States, and especially for creators creating work for kids explicitly in the United States. Yeah. So, yeah that was... Yeah, and I, I do want to talk a little bit more about that in our next episode, but... Mm -hmm. And I want to... When, when we talk about it in our next episode, I want to frame the sort of the positive of it, because you're right that, like, this is... How, how are we still here? How is this still happening? Yeah. 
Uh, and how is it like, there's no sign yet that it's going to stop happening or get better. The one thing that I think is much different is he, and Scott mentions this in this book about the idea of institutional support, that comics are not going to succeed unless there are people in institutions with power who see the value in the medium. And yeah. I do think we've, we have that now at least, well, which is why a lot of the bands are like against whole institutions or whole institutions are fighting against them. I think yeah. even from the perspective of the, the late nineties, the fact that that institution might be the libraries would have been surprising. Yeah. 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 Well, I, but I, like I said, I want to talk about that more next episode. Well, here I as kind of connected to that as maybe I don't know, maybe like trying to find a positive because, uh, but like yeah, I mean, you're right, Kathleen. Like the the censorship stuff, you're just like, oh my gosh, like the it feels like the wheel hasn't turned. But um, I, you guys can tell me what you think, because uh, I'm probably not qualified to gauge this as well. But just reading the first chapter. Scott McCloud sort of leads in saying like he has his kind of major points that these are the things comics needs to address in the future. And it's like comics as literature, comics as art, creators rights, industry innovation, public perception, institutional scrutiny, gender balance, minority representation, diversity of genre. And when he was really laying out the, the importance of institutional scrutiny gender balance, minority representation, and diversity of genre, I read that and I was like, I feel like we got further ahead on this. Like, I feel like when he's saying like, we can't just have superheroes published by the same two publishers, I'm like, oh, but Scott, now there's YA comics, there's queer comics, there's like a whole like sea of like people of color making comics, like there's there's so much and like it's so much more integrated into universities and libraries like every library has a comic section almost every college and university i know has a comics program like scott mcleod's understanding comics is like a staple of like institutional learning about comics like if you have a course about comics the bookstore probably has scott mcleod's understanding comics on the shelf at the book at the university bookstore right so we I mean, we're not it's not at the end game, but like, I'm just like, I feel like those are avenues where we actually saw a huge amount of progress from where Scott was in 2000 to where we are now. Um, there is pushback. There's people trying to pull us backwards, but I do feel like a lot of those things he talked about got addressed in from when he proposed them till, till now. What do you, I don't know. What do you guys think? I felt to me, that was the one highlight. I was like, Oh, I really feel like we moved ahead on that. <laughs> I, I partially agree. I, I do agree that on every single metric that Scott McLeod outlined, I could reflect back and see marks of progress, at least a little bit, towards every single one. I think I'm very proud of what has been achieved in this period of time. And I'm very, I feel like we're really, really lucky to have the types of creators and the types of stories we've been able to see in the last 20 years. But when I think of that, I reflect back on how hard it has been and the type of fight that I know people have been going through and continue to go through to make what little inroads have been made. Uh, so I do see it as like, we're on the right road, we're going in the right direction, but 
the road needs to be paved <laughs> you know we're still like slogging yeah. through mud mud is what it feels like if not being pushed backwards yeah that makes sense yeah i i that analogy speaks to me <laughs> yeah no i don't think there's any any of these that are done like even something like uh diversity of genre like we have more than one genre now if you told someone in 2000 guess what comics aren't just superheroes anymore they'd be pretty excited about that but like off the top of my head i can think of like a dozen genres that no one in north america is publishing comics of even just the yeah. idea of comics for adults like i don't think we're publishing more comics for adults now than we were in 2000 mm. like we've had this huge graphic novel explosion for oh boy kids but oh boy great. do i have opinions on this <laughs> okay please share yeah oh no i just like think um i was like <laughs> writing a blog post earlier today um <laughs> this is so stupid um but yeah i was writing a blog blog post early today that i will probably publish many months from now but i was just like reflecting on all of the books that i've read this year because i've really been trying to read more novels because yeah i just have not been reading as much since I left university almost 10 years ago because university killed my love of reading uh so I've been trying to get back into it and I found that I'm really enjoying reading novels and really gravitating towards reading novels as opposed to graphic novels for adults because there's just not the diversity of genre in graphic novels for adults um I cannot find the same like I think I think everyone you know working in graphic novels for adults is like making fantastic work and this is not a reflection on any creators but rather um the industry and who is choosing to publish what but there is just not the same variety and not the same level of nuance and depth in like what it is possible to seek out necessarily in North American comics. I do feel like it is quite narrow. And like, like obviously I read what's there as well, like in North American comics for adults, but it's just like, man, I just can't find what I'm looking for narratively necessarily. And, you know, like uh, also speaking as someone like pitching work for adults too, like larger publishers, you know, I think we're all very familiar with the fact that, you know, we're sort of like, in a huge middle grade boom right now which you know that always feels like that bubble is going to burst at any moment but publishers are putting all of their money into creating and promoting middle comics for a middle grade audience um so for anyone listening who's maybe not familiar with the term middle grade that's an audience of readers 9 to 12 aged and they aren't necessarily the publishers aren't necessarily like investing in what happens once those readers age out of the 9 to 12 age bracket like yes we will always have more 9 to 12 year olds showing up and like wanting to read books but like if you are creating this love of comics this like extremely hungry love of comics because you know I think there is a very big difference today of like kids familiarity with comics versus when I was a kid and I'm sure when you guys were kids as well like you know when I was a kid I was one of you know maybe a couple of people in my class who are reading comics and today I go and do school visits and I say like who's read a comic before and everyone's hand goes up and like who's made a comic before and a lot of hands go up so like kids today are incredibly comics literate and the publishers are not 
investing necessarily on like where who those readers will become as they age and you know there are some young adult comics as well but certainly not as many as the middle grade and then it just like really drops off when you hit like adult for any sort of like main stream publisher and when I say mainstream I'm not really meaning Marvel or DC but more thinking of like traditional book publishers um, and the imprints that they're creating because they're creating imprints for middle grade they're creating imprints for YA and they are just not investing in books for adults in the same way which I suppose is like uh, understandable financially in some ways but also is very frustrating both as a reader and as a creator where like I know on an independent level like so many of us are seeking out those comics like from independent creators because those are people are making these things and there is an audience there that is seeking it out but publishers don't necessarily want to put money behind it because let me tell you pitching an adult graphic novel is so much harder than pitching a middle grade graphic novel yeah it took so much longer to pitch an adult uh work that I'm working on right now than it did to pitch stuff for kids just because of the market and and stuff like that um so sorry that was a very long digression um okay yeah yeah and I, I think like this I the there's the there's manga and there's web comics and those can fill some of that space but then like that doesn't help the creators in North America who want to make those kinds of comics because web comics don't pay webtoon doesn't pay well mm-hmm. and deadlines are terrible um and manga is made in Japan, so like no one here is getting paid to make it. And also from the reader point of view, like that also severely limits what's available to you to read if there's no way for people here to make the comics you want, financially speaking. Yeah. However, I want to add that I think despite those challenges that have had that we have seen and that we're discussing a lot of the inroads that have been made in diversity of genre are because of the web allowing people to Mm -hmm. pursue some of the topics that interest them in spite of all the challenges and some of them finding surprise success just on their own by virtue of word of mouth and what the internet allows so I do reflect back on a lot of genres that didn't necessarily have any book representation for a really long time until a webcomic came up and was like oh you could actually tell a comic about this and this one it's really good you know yeah absolutely I think it's it's interesting to see what kind of comics are popular on webtoon it's a lot of romance uh, a lot of queer romance and like no publishers for any of that oh my god let me tell you pitching (laughs) a queer romance for adults (laughs) <laughs> so hard to sell <laughs> and yet like this if you look at web, at least based on just this one website website webtoon like there's a huge audience for this massive like that's what everybody on webtoon seems to want and yet nothing nothing from publishers yeah i'm exaggerating but no no but it is it is definitely like in the minority of what i think uh publishers are like willing to take on which yeah i don't know it's so frustrating it all comes down to like man capitalism uh sucks uh (laughs) and like i am both like so happy that like the web exists and there are always people making comics and the barrier of entry to posting online is so low uh because we get so many like fantastic interesting works and people just like making their little passion projects that are so interesting and so niche 
but also I want more opportunities for more people to make a bit more money under a capitalist system. Actually, like, yeah, what really stood out to me is, I don't know if we want to move into kind of the future of comics that, um, not not in the terms of like the second episode we're going to do, but Mm -hmm. kind of like the second half of this book, Mm -hmm. when it came to like the micropayments and like that whole breakdown of uh, that Jeff was describing earlier with like, oh, you got to, you know, the the distributor bones connected to the shop bone, the shop bones connected to the reader bone, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and how it, it felt to me like reading it today felt kind of convoluted, you know, like it's so baked and so steeped in the capitalist system that, you know, uh, not everyone is here yet. But from me, I'm not I'm no longer thinking of ways that society should monetize compassion and creativity. I'm thinking of ways that it's like, hey, survival isn't something that needs to be earned. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like it's a very like shift in thinking from my perspective. And I know like it's like, oh, it's nice to dream about, you know, I still need to pay my rent. And that's very real. And people need like today, we do need those mechanisms to pay people fairly. Uh, but I think when it comes to looking forward now, I'm looking I'm like a leapfrog forward. Yeah, no, I, uh, man, I, I love that vision jam. Um, <laughs> I mean, again, it's like, there's whatever this is outside of Scott McCloud. It's like so many issues that come up about like art and AI art and like all this stuff. I'm like, you know, if we just all had a UBI, this wouldn't be a problem anymore. Like, just, <laughs> we wouldn't, it would be a different yeah. conversation if we all just had a UBI, you know. But <laughs> what I'm saying is that you can have that thought and I can have that thought. It wasn't even an, a twinkle in Scott McCloud's eye. Right. In right. 1998. And even just that shift of thinking gives me tremendous hope. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, I, I do think like when I was reading this again, like, I do think that the big thing he really sort of the the blind spot that he had was the idea of content sorting and aggregation that he was just like, man, it'll be great. Everyone in the world will have their own personal website and then you'll just cruise the internet and you'll like discover the best comics made by the best people at their personal websites. And then you'll give them a micropayment so that, they can pay their rent. And like, you know, again, in, in year 2000 terms, you're like, oh, that's that's pretty nice. Um, but it's like, I he just doesn't, like he doesn't sort of understand the overwhelmingness of that where it's like, people don't wanna have to go hunting for the best comic. They wanna walk, like to, to sort of connect the digital world to the, the, the physical world. It's like people, want to walk into a comic book store and they want to browse the shelves and find a cool comic on the shelf. So digitally with your micro payments, like if you really want people to find your web comic, you kind of need like a comic store for web comics. And that's sort of what Webtoon is sort of providing right now is it's like, you want to read a serialized comic? We got thousands. Come on in, check it out. We got lots. And it's like, I don't think Scott, sort of perceive that like people don't want to have to hunt they want things easy they're people are lazier than scott mcleod gives them credit for and like they just want 
they want they like they're most people don't think think it all the way through they're happy for amazon to just like aggregate and be like here's a comic we think you'll like click this button it'll sh like show up on your ipad in a second and people are like great and then they don't think about how like oh but this is a system that's got me corralled in that's keeping me away from seeing all this other stuff it's like it's, it's tailored to my tastes but it's not going to challenge my tastes like you know, I just think Scott never saw Facebook or Google like consolidating the internet. Like that was the one sort of blind spot he had in all of his predictions. And that's like, like I still feel like the one, sorry, the, I just feel like that's the one problem we're having even in 2023 is like, yeah, I can put stuff on the internet, but like, how do I get people to find it? Like, how do I get on the bookshelf so that people interested maybe have a chance to find me? Like there's no local comic store people can walk in and browse to the same it's 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 too controlled now anyway sorry i i think two things to that one is that the middlemen are back like the middlemen get got pushed out uh because they weren't working for readers or creators and they found a way to make themselves useful again uh, and the other thing is i think the population of people who are on the internet has actually changed since 2000. There's a, a book I read. It's a linguistics book. It's called Because Internet. Oh, I read uh, that really too. Yeah. It's a really yeah. good book. <laughs> one, one of the things it talks about is, it, and I don't remember the, the different generations it talks about now, but it talks about these sort of different generations of people online based on like when they got online and sort of moved in. And the population that has moved in since 2000 is a different group of people. These are not people who are who like see computers as or the internet as inherently fun they're here for content but they're not here because they like the interconnectivity the sort of the magic of being able to browse everything like that kind of stuff i think was true of people in 2000 and is not true now because it's different people i think that's very true Mm -hmm. that's true like, how could you, you predict still, that you can still have that kind of magical discovery experience on the internet but it takes a lot more legwork i think um the reason scott mcleod could not see that type of person is because he's coming from the perspective of someone who loves to hunt who mm -hmm. loves discovery and newness and weirdness you know that's just kind of ingrained in his personality and i'm kind of that kind of person as well <laughs> yeah. uh, and so like I can relate to that but I, I agree with you Jeff uh, I've had to come to that realization as well it's like but look I'm doing something cool and different and I was like no I don't give a shit you know <laughs> I don't care <laughs> it's, it's just like you have to find like I don't know what the answer is but it's like you have to find a way for your cool and different shit to like pop up in the corner when somebody's looking at the thing that they're they, they they like you know they're, like they're they're I want to read a superhero comic but then they want you want like a little link to be like hey this other person is doing something different like oh maybe I'll check that out but it's like yeah it, 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 I don't know what I don't know how to do this digitally but it's like again it's like if you I remember as a youth going to the comic book store and you'd like walk down the news rack and like you know I knew I was gonna buy Spider Man so I'm looking for Spider Man. I'm beelining over to grab Spider-Man. But then while I'm in the process of doing that, something catches my eye. What is this? Oh, like Death, the High Cost of Living by Neil Gaiman. That's interesting. Well, maybe I'll read that. You know, like 
but I wouldn't have discovered if I wasn't just like in that environment. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. And (laughs) what, what strikes me is that I have a completely different experience of discovery. I'm talking to my weirdo anarchist punk friends who are saying like, oh man, I've got the hookup for you. I've got the weirdest thing you've ever seen. Check this out. You know, like it always comes to me through some kind of weird sinewy left field. I have not gone to a comic store on purpose in a long time. You know, it's like, I almost never go out seeking something. It's always through this like weird network of like, oh, you know, well, well what's, what's hopping over here? And it like kind of filters through me that way. And so it's very interesting that, you know, the two of us can have such a different desire and experience for how we want to uh, seek and access. Yeah. I mean, also, I was going to say, like, nor nor should you go to a comic book store. Like, if there's one... <laughs> there are still good comic book stores. Sorry, Sorry. Yeah. Most of them so have, like, a lot of Funko Lucky's Comics. Lucky's Comics is great, but... Um, <laughs> But like in, 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 that's one thing I noticed in, in reinventing comics is Scott talks about the problem with comic book stores today. And like, I was like, yeah, those guys didn't change at all. The stats, the that's all the comic book stores are years. closing. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think both of your approaches to finding comics exist on the internet. Like if you go to Webtoon, I think Webtoon in its defense will do a good job of like showing you new things to read. Yes. And, and different things, not necessarily exactly the same thing you've you've done. Like, that's not the same thing as like the full breadth of the Internet, because there's stuff that like Webtoon just won't let on. And the experience of like word of mouth recommendations is still very possible, uh, like that's what social media is for. But I think both neither of the, those are things that are capitalism's preference. Capitalism prefers to give you an almost exact copy of the thing you already have because then it's a sure bet that you'll pay for it yeah they want you to like get the re-release and the re-edition and uh, the port from this game system to that game system pay for it Uh again we're almost out of time believe it or not uh any other things you want to talk about for this book yes (laughs) this is maybe not super deep but there was one panel that like struck me in the book where Scott McCloud in you know the late 90s as this book is published in 2000 says that he does not think the great American graphic novel has been written yet and I was wondering if we could maybe discuss whether or not we thought it had and then also I was thinking because we are all Canadian from the Canadian perspective like I would because I don't think that I can personally no actually I have a couple contenders for the American one but I think for the Canadian the concept of a like great Canadian graphic novel I think Canadian cartoonists are we make a lot of work about or like very like rooted within Canada both like I guess within the colonial concept of Canada and then also outside of that um so yeah I was wondering if what you guys thought about that comment sort of 23 years later yeah, I mean, is it still true well like i mean i think you know uh ducks is the great canadian graphic novel uh that maybe usurped uh this one summer as the previous great canadian graphic novel as uh, well as like essex county yeah that's another yeah 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 so i think like we're at a point where we can debate it for sure yeah. <laughs> um great america i mean okay i because i have two contenders off the top of my head just thinking about it now 
Okay. Which is, I would say, okay, it's been a really long time since I've read this one, but Stuck Rubber Baby by Howard Cruz. Um, I don't know if any of you have read it. No, it's mentioned in this book and I haven't. Oh my God. You guys gotta get on this. It's, (laughs) um... It's a pretty influential work. Again, it has been a real, I have not read it since high school, but it it is inspired by his own experience being a gay man in like the 50s and 60s in America in the South through segregation uh, and desegregation. So like that would be a contender. Also, he is a mentor of Alison Bechdel, who I would say dykes to watch out for. Um, you know would also be my argument which you know maybe coming from like a queer perspective of like of of course these sort of like queer perspectives are like very much speaking to um Uh, I did want to say like one of my markers for institutional recognition was the fact that Alison Bechdel got the 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 genius grant yes the MacArthur the MacArthur genius grant that's right Hmm. I I mean like I I would actually say um Fun Home is Mm -hmm. is one that for a great American uh, graphic novel stands out to me. Like, uh, I mean, I like, I also like Dykes to watch out for, but for me, like, I think fun home is just like, as far as a great graphic novel that, that one's like, that one's sitting on my shelf uh, pretty high up. I think that the world of comics is constantly improving. There are new and better graphic novel novels out all the time. And the idea of quote unquote great American novel or great Canadian novel is one that you are assume, not you, Kathleen, but people generally are, are sort of pitching as this is the pinnacle which no one would no one can touch. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we are at the top of this mountain yet. I don't think we're anywhere near the top of the mountain yet. Uh, and so there are really, really great graphic novels out there. I'm not yet prepared to sort of wash my hands and say, that's it, we've done it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I'll be quick because I feel like I don't feel qualified to really speak on this because I don't tend to resonate with things that are called great American novels. <laughs> so I don't tend to read work like that. I don't tend to seek work like that. Oh yeah, as much as I like propose this as a question, uh, I think that like <laughs> the concept of greatness within a canon is very flawed. Uh, but I do think it's interesting to think about. Sure. Uh, yeah. Sort of like where are we at? Like you know, Scott McCloud's like it hasn't been done yet. It's like how, <laughs> do we have any contenders? Like what do I we think? think? We do what have does contenders. the like? I think that's I, fair. I do think we have contenders. Yes. What does the shape of this look like? How <laughs> can you shape canon through like the way that you're considering what greatness is? um you know I think um I think that one maybe positive I can think of is you know early on in this book on like page 12 Scott McLeod is sort of saying oh well we've had a few inroads with like serious works like Alan Morris from Hell Chris Ware's Acme Novelty Library and Discovering America by David Mazzuchelli which I've read two out of three of those but they're all like straight white male perspectives. And so maybe the fact that in our discussion of, of contenders as like diversified, I feel like that's maybe a very positive in and of itself that, you know, you don't have to, there's more than just from hell now to be like, that's a really good graphic novel. Like, I mean, (laughs) 
I'm biased. It is. That's but, very true. No, that's a good point. There's, there's lots of there's lots more options now for people, right? And I think that's a positive. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, like my my one big takeaway from this book is, uh, I think the impact and literacy and appreciation of comics has grown tremendously in the intervening years. Just broadly, more people have read a comic, know how to read a comic. You see them popping up as just a method of communication more and more. And I think that speaks really well to the brightness of comics future, despite the challenges that still stand in our way. Yeah. Uh, I wonder, uh, and of course I'm biased because this book was so influential to me personally, but I wonder how many cartoonists read this at some point and it became a big influence on the way they made comics, the way they shared comics, the way they talked about comics. And I feel like this book is a much more influential work than it gets credit for. Oh, yeah. I mean, like I said, I think my memory of this was like, Honestly, I, I put a link in the chat, but it's like my my longest standing memory of Scott McCloud's reinventing comics was the Penny Arcade comic they made that was like, it's magic for dinner, right? Where they're just like kind of making fun of Scott's co concept of micropayments and stuff. And like, I was just like, oh yeah, like everyone laughed him off stage. And then like rereading this, I'm like, no, like he was spot on with so much stuff. Like, and... I think it was way more prescient than people give it credit for. And I don't know. I think that it, especially like just when he talks about comics needing to be become more mature and to like, you know, get that institutional support that I think was the biggest highlight for me where I would, you know, having just taken a university level or getting my degree and then taking a university level course in auto bio comics and being like, Oh yeah. Like we're in now we're, we're in, we're, we're, we're art we're in there now like that's not a debate anymore right and it's like we he was making a, a joke about the like bang pow comics aren't for kids anymore which like cloudscape was in a couple of those articles early on but like you don't see those anymore like that's just not a thing so like yeah it's like there's there's been some real progress and yeah i think the medium itself i think is is it's been exciting to just see how much it's opened up for everyone to to try their hand at it and then our second episode is when we, maybe how do those people monitor like how do those people survive while doing it that's going to be the the bigger discussion but like i think it's lots more people are making comics which is awesome that's i don't know this book i it's so good to revisit it i was like this is a an underappreciated book go read go read reinventing comics i have one last parting thought but it's not about reinventing comics. I just wanted to say on this, our 100th episode of the Trade Waiters, I just wanted to give, express my gratitude and give my thanks to each and every one of you. Uh, I think it's been a real privilege and a joy to be able to reflect on art with all of you. And I'm really grateful for all of the great comics we've been able to expose each other to and experience together and uh, learn more about. So I just wanted to say thanks. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, this has been great. I'm like, still can't quite believe it's been a hundred episodes. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to believe, isn't it? I, I remember back 
I am so proud of you all for outlasting <laughs> that rival Trade Raiders podcast way back in the day who started after us and then were real jerks when we were like, excuse me, um, we've been doing a podcast called The Trade Raiders. Like, you need to change your name. Here's a bunch of things you can change it to. And they were like, no, we won't. And they don't do that podcast anymore. Did you know that there is now a third podcast out there called The Trade Waiters, which definitely started after us and Uh, is doing the exact same thing of like, let's get a bunch of our friends and read a trade paperback of Spider-Man or whatever. And I haven't bothered contacting them because I don't care. We're the real trade waiters. It's well, anytime I have a title for anything, I'm like Googling so many different versions of it to be like, is this a thing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, um, I'm like, I don't know, maybe I'm skewing my own Google results, but there have been times where I've Googled just like the name of a book that we have happened to have read on trade readers. And in the Google results, like in Google images in particular, things from trade readers come up, like our title cards and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I like, uh, I will say, I think it's, it's been, it's been really fun. And I think the, the, some of the highlights this year was like when some of the artists we've reviewed have actually like commented on and, and recommended our podcast after like Kate Beaton gave us a shout out. Dershing Helmer gave us a shout out. Like that's a cool feeling. I'm sure at some point someone will give a bad review to will reach out to us. <laughs> uh, okay, so our, our next episode is going to be something different. Now that we've taken the time to read over Scott McLeod's predictions of the future 20 years ago with the benefit of hindsight, we are going to put ourselves on the line and make our own predictions or speculations about the future of comics or hopes or fears for the future of comics. And then those will be recorded and put on the internet forever. And then 20 years from now, some other podcast can like listen to us and like tell us where we're wrong. It will not be a podcast in 20 years. I'm <laughs> format we cannot foresee. It'll be VR, finally. VR live reenactment. Uh, it's it's going to be my goal that uh, some webcomic makes a comic making fun of my opinions about the next 20 years of comics. <laughs> All right. Hey, this is JD. I just want to let you know that my new graphic novel, Phobos and Demos, is currently on Kickstarter for a few more days. So you can go to Kickstarter and search up Phobos and Demos, which is spelt like the moons of Mars or look up Jay Dalton, or go to cloudscapecomics.com and find a link there. The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. We'd like to thank Sleuth for the music, and you can find us on SoundCloud and Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts and many other podcast places. Thanks for listening. <laughs>